the only thing I found helpful for that is actually differentiating between sequencing and prioritization. I think every single person who I talk to is like, well, what are your priorities? And, you know, there's the very famous phrase, which is not my own, that like priorities as a plural is an oxymoron, right? There's no such thing. There is just a priority. And I think this, this, everybody has their list of 10 things, their list of 10 things. And my push constantly will be actually don't prioritize sequence. Only do one thing, maybe two at any given time. But if you do them fast, if you sequence them and you can get this off your plate, then you can move on to the next. You'll get to the 10 things eventually. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoy this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Jane Alexander, Chief Marketing Officer at Carta, a platform that helps people and companies manage equity, build businesses, and invest in private companies. Launched in 2012, Carta is used by nearly 30,000 companies and over half a million employees to manage cap tables, compensation, and valuation. Carta also works with over 4,500 funds representing over $92 billion in assets under administration. They have raised over a billion dollars from a very long list of investors, including Union Square Ventures, Tribe Capital, Spark Capital, Silver Lake, Lightspeed, A16Z Insight, and many more. We discuss the power of content creation and why it's been an incredible source for organic growth at Carta the role of a CMO at companies and how generative AI tools are transforming the job, navigating the pressures of a more competitive and challenging business environment, time management and productivity hacks, importance of customer feedback, and a lot more. All right. Well, Jane, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. How are you today on this amazing, let's call it morning, we're at the border of the morning and the afternoon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. I'm sitting here in our New York office. We're at the 81st floor of One World Trade. So I have this incredible view of New York City on a beautiful day like this. Yeah, hard not to be happy with that. Thanks for joining us. We're going to hear all about Carta and all about your role as chief marketing officer at Carta. And I understand that that hasn't been your only role at the company. You've done other things. So maybe take us through your background, your career, and then let's talk a little bit about the CMO role. Sure. Yeah. I've spent most of my career in go-to-market functions at scaling companies. So, you know, first job out of college was a outbound sales rep for a tech startup in San Mateo, California. I did 80 cold calls a day. I sent 500 cold emails a week. And since then, I've just been working in different sales or revenue or marketing, go-to-market positions and scaling companies. One of those companies was acquired by Salesforce. So then I spent a couple of years at Salesforce leading revenue 
EMEA revenue for the product lines that they had acquired. I did a brief stint in investing, kind of saw the other side of the of the coin at Excel, and then joined Carta as, as you mentioned, as chief of staff to our CEO. Um, so worked on a variety of projects there, including some of our marketing initiatives and, and brand initiatives and our policy and government affairs work. And now for the last two years, I've been lucky enough to work with our marketing and biz dev and policy teams as CMO. What does that entail? What does the role of a CMO entail, especially in 2023, you know, where we live in a fast changing world? Maybe let's, let's compare it. You know, what do you think the role of a CMO entail 20 years ago, as far as you know, versus today? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think for me that I think of my role very specifically at Carta as twofold. My job is to be the tip of the spear for growth. We're a scaling company and my role is to help reflect that curve and make us grow as fast as possible. So every Monday morning, the team gets together, we stack hands and we repeat what we're here to do, which is first be the tip of the spear for growth as we build towards a billion dollars in revenue. And second is bring the soul of Carta to market. And that's really about driving affinity and building affinity within, within our customer base, within our ecosystem for Carta and the things that we do. So I, I really think of of the role of, of marketing in an organization and product also as building value. And then the role of sales and the business model generally is to extract value. And if you think of those two curves, if you can layer those two curves on top of each other, the difference between them is consumer surplus. So when I think about building affinity for Carta, I think about building consumer surplus. Does every customer, does every person who interacts with us, every prospect get more from Carta than they give to it? And to me, that's deeply, deeply important. The role of a CMO and the role of marketing generally, I think, has, has changed drastically, primarily driven by the changes in technology. Of course, if you are, you know, I, I was I think about this often, about the beautiful marketing work that Michelin did with the Michelin Guide, right? Like, with so with very with different tools than we had, they were thinking, how can we create more tire sales? Well, let's get people driving to different restaurants. Let's tell them where they need to drive to. Let's tell them where they need to go get some wear and tear on those on those tires. And now with the changes in the tools that we have available and the way that our customers act, you know, we have to be reaching them through podcasts like yours or through social media or through generative AI, whatever that might be. Maybe the the tools that we use are different. But ultimately, my view is that the role is is the same. The role is to understand your customer, understand your business, and be the marriage between the two in a way that drives growth. You mentioned new technological advances that are helping the CMO office. We got to talk about AI, of course, this amazing, amazing new wave of AI tools that we're seeing. And I think um, it's reached almost all corners of the world and also of the corporate world. Yeah. And when I think of some of its top use cases, sales and reaching the consumer in a faster, more automated way comes to mind. But then I think about what you just mentioned, bringing the soul of the company into the marketing. You don't want AI to remove that soul and, and sound too mechanical. So maybe tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited to see what happens here. I think there's going to be, I think it'll change a lot of the way we work. And I'm certainly no, you know, no forecaster. None of us really are. But I think we'll see a huge proliferation of different use cases, especially to your point in sales and in marketing. 
you know, writing a blog post, much easier now. At the very least, you can start with a draft written by somebody else. Social copy, internal communications, getting people on the same page is going to be so much easier. There's going to be a huge, I mean, the marginal cost of writing a custom email from an SDR, like quote unquote custom, is going to go to zero, which in some ways is incredible because you can send all of these custom emails. But if you play that out to its logical conclusion, well, then actually everybody's emails are going to get stuffed with custom emails and the value of those custom emails will also go to zero. So I think we'll see this huge spike in useful applications that will probably ruin the channels that they're <laughs> that they're using. So I think it'll be a really interesting time as with any time that there's a lot of innovation and kind of this shift, there'll be opportunity for us to take advantage of. I think where we can use these AI tools to our benefit is if we're able to use them to accelerate where we have edge, that I think will be the benefit. If everybody is just using them to send custom emails, well, then the value goes to zero. But how can you use AI to just accelerate where you already have edge and to kind of build your moat even further? And I think that takes the human in the loop to know what that edge is. You know, the robots don't know. They can help you get there, but you have to have that unique insight of where your edge is. I also think it'll mean that there's a lot of opportunity for owned channels. I've been a big believer in this for the last few years. But how do you create opportunities to connect with your customers, to connect with prospects that you actually own fully? Because again, as, as you think about how people are going to be sending more emails and, you know, changing the way that this fundamentally in a few years changed the way that Google advertising works, which a lot of us are reliant on, you know, as those channels change and develop in new ways, having your own will become more and more important. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit, it's not perfect analogy, but it reminds me a little bit of postcards. I think sending a postcard today carries so much more weight than it did. 30 years ago, right? I think a little bit of, of that is going to happen in AI where cases where there's a human in the loop or it's 100% human made, they're probably going to carry more weight. But but I, I'm also excited. You know, I see it as a also as a strong assist, right? We'll see where it goes. In your role at Carta, how do you measure success for you and your team, I guess? I have two primary metrics that I try to drive. The first is obvious, it's revenue. My job here is to help us grow and scale and build a business. And I think where a lot of sales and marketing teams can get into trouble is when their goals conflict. So when marketing teams are measured on pipeline and sales teams are measured on revenue, there's a gap between them. And it leads to this finger pointing of, well, your pipeline wasn't good enough or no, you 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 know, you're, you weren't good enough at closing it. It was great. And it creates that friction because the goals are different. So the first thing when I took this role, as I said, listen, my goal has to be the same goal as our CROs. We are one trying to drive revenue for the business. And we may have different aspects of that that we control. Our CRO, Jeff, has much more control over the close rate than I do. I can help with PMM, with collateral, things of that nature. And I have more control over top of funnel, given the nature of our business and the dynamics of our business. But at the end of the day, we are both responsible for hitting our revenue number. And that's the number that I hold myself accountable to and report to the to the board on. The second metric that I, so that's the first. And the second metric that, that I really think about is affinity. That's harder to measure. You know, there are so many ways are quite expensive and clunky and more difficult when your customer base is as, as niche as, as ours. But I, there are a couple of proxies that we use for that, right? NPS may be one of those. Social sentiment may be one of those. Another one that I, I use and really hold myself to is the amount of revenue and pipeline that's coming in organically. 
if we're really creating strong affinity, then people are going to be referring to each other. People are going to be talking about us. People are going to be coming inbound. So I, I look a lot at overall revenue and then also amount of revenue that we're driving organically, not just through paid channels. In your experience, speaking of organic growth, what have been the biggest drivers for organic growth? And I, I just hosted um, the chief product officer of Wise, Neil, and and they take that very, very seriously. So I'm curious to learn how it works at Carta. Well, it's probably different for every company. Two things are important for us. The, the first is content works remarkably well for us. Um, content is there's so much in our ecosystem that you need to learn about. There's so much as a first time founder, first time fund manager, even just an employee, which I believe our employees don't pay, you know, employees that use Carta don't pay us. The company or the fund does. Where are the future founders coming from? They were employees once upon a time. So if we can create a relationship with users who don't pay us today, one day we can help them become a founder, become a funder, become a customer in the future and build that affinity now. Um, so content is a huge driver for us. I'm particularly interested in opportunities where content can compound. So there's, you know, classic SEO that I think there's a pretty linear relationship there. And sometimes it's exponential with where you land on the SERP, but for the most part, it's generally a linear trajectory, but there are some types of content that can be really exponential and can compound on themselves. And that's where we've been exploring these courses. So we last year, we released Equity 101. That's become just, we don't market it anymore. We don't do any promotion, but it gets thousands of views every single week just on its own because it compounds. People find value out of it. They share it with somebody else. They share it with somebody else. It kind of does the work on its own. We just released Capable 101. This week, we're releasing Founder Finance, Fundraising 101 in the coming months. So I'm particularly interested in where content can compound. And I think video is a great opportunity for that. And then the second, and this is so much harder to measure, you really have to squint through the fog on this, but is these in-person moments, especially for VCs, you know, you're not going to click on a paid ad and get your fund admin from that necessarily. Maybe if you're all the way down in the funnel, but how do we create these really unique in-person experiences and the rarer we can make that experience, the more insightful that we can make that experience, I think, the better. And again, you have to squint through the fog a little bit and nobody leaves in a, vet, a dinner series and is like, yep, perfect. I'm going to buy some do, but that's more rare. So the way we measure that is we look at cohorts. So we look at the cohort of people who have attended events that we've done and their revenue growth over a period versus folks who haven't. And in measuring it that way, you can actually see quite a strong correlation between those. And when you think of the biggest challenges that you've encountered over the last two years, you know, how has, I guess, your expectations, you know, ha have they matched reality in terms of challenges that you expected and challenges that you're actually dealing with? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, we're to start so many. And that's the fun of it. You know, like the fun of what we do is working on problems. The more problems, the better. Like that's our oxygen at Carta is problems to solve. I think the biggest challenge for me, if I really, if I'm really honest with myself, it's actually marrying all the different things that we do together and figuring out like the human side of that. The marketing organization here is, is pretty unique. We have our your classic marketing team, you know, with product marketing, brand, content. We also have our business development or channel sales team kind of in this organization and also policy and government affairs. So these things are kind of, you might imagine that they're a little bit disparate, but finding the intersection and finding the kind of the marriage, the union of those and where they can accelerate each other has been has been really wonderful. I, I think the biggest challenge across all of that is really the human side of all of this. 
you know, executing on a paid campaign, executing on a brand campaign, that is hard. But the hardest part I found is how do you drive relentless pace? How do you drive vigorous execution, set high targets, just absolutely drive? And I love that. That's where I get energy is like that relentless, vigorous execution, but also create space for creativity and ideation and nuance and have the most beautiful and brilliant brand minds in the world have space to play and to create. And that's where kind of that beautiful, the, the unique insights come from. And that's been my biggest challenge is how do I push the pace of the team, but also create space for what's going to really move the needle for us. If we do everything, we'll actually end up doing nothing. And I think that I always want to do more and more and more. The team knows this and reminds me of it all the time. The only thing I found helpful for that is actually differentiating between sequencing and prioritization. I think every single person who I talk to is like, well, what are your priorities? And, you know, there's the very famous phrase, which is not my own, that like priorities as a plural is an oxymoron, right? There's no such thing. There is just a priority. And I think this, this, everybody has their list of 10 things, their list of 10 things. And my push constantly will be actually don't prioritize sequence, only do one thing, maybe two at any given time. But if you do them fast, if you sequence them and you can get this off your plate, then you can move on to the next. You'll get to the 10 things eventually. But sequencing is much, much more important to me than, than prioritization. That's super interesting. And I guess for sequencing, it's going to vary depending on the task. You might be working something for an hour and then switch to the next one, but you might have some very long-term projects. Can you talk more about that? Like, when did you learn and start applying this sequencing versus prioritizing? I definitely learned it at Carta. I, I think myself and probably many people who really value kind of achievement and want to keep pushing and keep learning and are deeply curious are multitaskers. Like, you know, I'm listening to a podcast while I'm brushing my teeth, while I'm checking Slack, you know, you're you, just in my personal life. I feel like I'm always doing five things. But at Carta is where I really learned that if you're doing everything all at once, there comes a point where you're actually just doing nothing. And the power of putting your entire focus on one thing is really, I think we underappreciate that and undervalue it. So it was probably my first year in this role in particular, where I realized actually by doing everything, we're peanut buttering our effort across. And then you're, you're kind of doing nothing. And yeah, that's the, it was the first year of this role that I realized we really just have to sequence that is all we need. We need to do one thing, maybe two at any given time and nail it. And then we'll learn from that and we'll apply the learnings to the next thing and the next thing. And again, I'm obsessed with this concept of compounding and only by when you're doing 10 things at once, you get no compounding. But when you learn one at a time, you really do. Jane, you've talked about Carta and you, you've talked a little bit about the customers and products, but tell us about where Carta started and how your offering looks today and what are, I guess, your main products these days? Well, Carta started, and I wasn't here for the start. I joined along the journey, but Carta really started with the mission, first and foremost, to digitize stock certificates. You know, I remember the first startup I joined, I got my stock options in a manila envelope. And that's crazy when you think of it now, like that's a crazy thing to do. And, and the mission there was, if you could do that, if you could solve that problem, you would lower the cost of creating owners and you could actually create more owners. You could live in a world in the future where everybody was an owner, where everybody had access to that, to the beautiful alpha of private markets. And you could kind of transform the world 
from one today where we all work for a salary. And if we lose our job, whether it's in the layoffs that we've seen over the last year or two, or just at the end of our careers, we're kind of left with nothing, just whatever we could have saved. But if you're an equity owner, you still have a piece of what you worked to build and you can continue to benefit from the growth there. So after kind of the first step of that is bringing everything into the cloud. And by doing that, we created this kind of map of private markets. We have the registry, the ownership map of everything in private markets. And the beautiful thing about that is the more problems we solve, the more we get to solve. So by solving that first problem, now, okay, great, we've got everyone's cap tables. Well, actually, the logical next thing to do is, well, you want to be doing fund administration for the venture firms that are giving those those companies capital. So we started a venture fund administration business. We started a valuations business. Of course, if you have all the assets, you want to be able to do the foreign NAs. We have all the assets. We can value them. We can do that. Now we do more than 80% of all foreign NA valuations. It's, it's remarkable. Then our customers start asking us, well, hey, you actually know how much everyone's getting paid and I can't get reliable equity pay data. Can you can you actually give us a compensation solution? Then we do that. Well, my, my employees keep asking me about tax advice and how do their options taxed? And so then we started a tax advisory business. Just that the beauty of this is that you can you can continue to solve more and more problems. So I would say now, well, we started kind of building that infrastructure by moving paper stock certificates into the cloud. Now we really have made true on that promise and we are the infrastructure for private markets, whether it be helping companies with their cap tables, funds with their fund administration, or companies with any problem that really has to do with the nitty gritty back office. It's textbook expand through adjacencies. You're, you're not necessarily targeting a, a different customer. I mean, slightly from the beginning, but but you're just adding more products to the same customers. A hundred percent. And every time we think about where to expand, what market we should go into, we ask ourselves first, is it an end of one market? And we believe that those markets are, are that's an important market dynamic for us. And the second is, where do we have edge? Do we have unique either distribution or product advantage in that market? And starting from where you have edge is very different from starting from what your customers are asking. But I think it's a very important way of how we've grown. But we are in a brutally competitive environment where also, as you mentioned, there's been a ton of layoffs in our industry, unfortunately. That has to complicate things, not just for you, but for any SaaS company. What have you learned about these pressures and, and kind of how have you adjusted to compete where you know, there's seat compression, there's more competitors, et cetera? I don't know. Tell us a bit about the most uh, recent months at Carta. Yeah, well, it's, you know, in many ways, we serve the private markets. So when our customers suffer, of course, so do we. I think that the bar for execution certainly goes up for all of us. And I think that's a really fun place to be. I think you can take that in one of two ways. Either take the pressure as something that kind of causes you to clamp down and go to what's known. You can take that pressure as something that really helps fuel you, like enjoy it. And I, I certainly enjoy the pressure. I, I think it's like very fun for us to raise the bar on execution. Maybe the the lesson for me in the last few months to share is when there is this pressure from the market, seek compression, et cetera, I think there is a natural inclination for companies to go towards value extraction mode. We need to hit these targets. So what are we going to do to be able to extract value from our customers? And I, I think that unconventional but really important place to go is actually in value creation is if you can stay relentless in delivering value for your customers and meeting their needs through these times, one, you'll have a disproportionate path through it. You'll, you'll actually, 
Ironically, that will end up working out better for you. And your customers will remember when times are good again, that you were there when when times were bad. So I think one of the examples from our recent months is it's tempting in a time where you have these really important and big goals to hit to raise prices. And actually, we did the opposite. What we were hearing from our customers is that they needed a lower entry point for Carta. And so we created a new package, which we actually just launched on Monday, which allows companies to get started on Carta for a much lower price, starting at 1500 bucks, so that they can get started earlier in their journey before they need a 49A. And that's already helping us kind of continue to move that growth number up. But again, it's counterintuitive. You want to move toward distracting. And that's exactly the time where I think you need to move into, into giving. You know, I used to live in Dublin and it reminds me, you know, Ireland got hit extremely hard during the global financial crisis. And there was this pressure to raise taxes for foreign companies because it's been a tax haven for a long time. And they did the opposite, right? They either lowered them or didn't touch them. And Ireland has recovered tremendously. So I, I see a little bit of that approach. Jane, you mentioned that content is super big and important for Carta. I actually read some of your data insights that you publish, and they're talking about real raw data of the industry. Maybe, you know, share some of the lessons that you've learned about generating content about your client ecosystem. Well, all kudos for this goes to Peter Walker. He leads insights for us. It was actually his two-year anniversary at Carta last week. I would say that the first thing that I've learned is how much people want this. People want to learn. There's so much opportunity out there to share the nitty-gritty, to share that. The first thing you mentioned is that it's raw data. It's real. I think there's a temptation to sugarcoat things. There's a temptation to say, well, let me obfuscate the complexity for you and just teach you the lesson that you that you need to know. Really, people want to actually, like, people are smart. If you give them the information that they need to be able to draw their own conclusions, that goes so much further. So I think the first lesson here is just how much people want this. And second, how much treating people like the adults that they are goes such a long way. I mean, the next step for us in this data work is not just creating these data private market reports, the compensation report, the liquidity. So we have a newsletter now that we do around secondary markets and the insights that we have there from our liquidity business. But the logical conclusion is actually share some of that data in its raw form. Allow people like you to come onto the site and actually say, mm, how does this look for Series B versus Series C? Can I compare this data? What does it look like seed? You know, How does the seed fundraising median compare in 2023 Q1 compared to 2019? Let you permutate the data and come to your own conclusions. It's been such a fun journey for us. And yeah, the, the biggest learning is for me is where people have curiosity just keep feeding it. Don't worry about sugarcoating it or making it pretty in package. Just feed their curiosity and the road will be endless. Before I let you go, Jane, if tomorrow you were about to teach a class with a room full of CMOs that are about to start their jobs at fast-growing tech companies, what are the key lessons that you would focus on? And I'll admit this whole episode is, you know, <laughs> a class. <laughs> First of all, joining a fast-growing company and being responsible for growth, like the expectation is triple. Like you have to be not just fast-growing, but even faster than the fast-growing. And so I think for me, the most important thing to focus on first is just execution. 
so much. And how do you execute? Can you get great at executing well? So much of marketing is subjective. I like this color. You like that color. You don't like that design. I like this illustration. Naming, my goodness, everyone's got an opinion on a name. So by definition, what you're going to be doing has a lot of subjectivity in it and people are going to have their own opinions. And so how do you really make sure that you can use those opinions as signal? You can use that feedback to feed the work and to make it great. Well, to me, it means you have to separate, is this feedback about execution or feedback about the strategy of it? And the sooner you can reduce the questions around execution, the faster you can actually get input and feedback around the strategy. So I think if you think of like Maslow's hierarchy of marketing, I think strong execution and fundamentals is the bottom. Everybody thinks it's creative genius. That's the fundamental. I think that's you earn the right to creative genius by doing fundamental great execution. So that's where I would start. Once you get that, you earn the right to do all of these things, which by definition are going to be out there. If you're going to have a unique insight, if you're going to, someone on our team says this, he's so, so wise. Creativity takes courage and you don't have the platform to stand on with that kind of those out there ideas or the, something that pushes the boundaries or even is going to push inflection for the company and inflection point for the company, unless you have strong fundamentals, unless you have that place to stand from, it's a great execution. So that's where I would focus first. Wise words. Thank you for this amazing episode. I'm sure the audience is going to really be fascinated with your insights. And thanks for taking the time to stop by. Thank you so much for having me. So much fun. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Jane Alexander, CMO at Carta. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.